y'all this morning. I want to invite you to join me in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 15. As we continue our study through 1 Corinthians 15, I pray and, and hope it's been a blessing to you and uh, has helped you to grow in understanding the, um, the resurrection, resurrection of the body. And we will uh, continue this study um, this week and then two more weeks. And then, Lord willing, we'll be done and um, be in December and do a special Christmas uh, ser- series, um, end of the year series, and then start out the new year with a, a new series on top of that. I want to read uh, from our text this morning, but actually go back a little bit to give a little bit of last week, what we talked about last week. Because la- last week we described the um, difference between the, uh, the earthly body that we have now, the one that we live in, the one that we see, um, the one that we function every day, versus the heavenly body that we will have in eternity, and last week we we dealt with uh, in a in a in a simplistic, really surfacey way. We looked at some of the differences between the two, and so I want to just read that again and, and do a little bit of review this morning before we get into our main text. So, um, if you want to join me, um, we'll we'll start in verse number thirty six, and uh, he talks about he says in verse thirty six, you fo- you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life until it dies, and what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps the wheat or of some grain, but God, God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. And so you start off with the fact that it's, he, he uses an analogy, uh, the Apostle Paul uses an analogy to compare the new body with the old body. And he uses the analogy of sowing a seed in the ground. And when you sow the seed in the ground, it's not the same as the, as the plant that comes out of the ground. It's different, uh, entirely different in many ways, but yet, but yet there's many similarities as well. It, it, it is the same thing. And what you sowed in the ground is what you got out of the ground. You identify a, um, you identify a apple tree because you put an apple seed in the ground. You don't put an orange seed in the ground and expect to get an apple tree. What you sow is what you get. And each one of us individually, it's interesting because each one of us individually is our own seed. Um, I am John Prettyman. So when, I sow, when my seed, John Prettyman, is sown into the ground, John Prettyman is going to come up out of the ground as well. And there's an identification that we have with what we sow into the ground and what we reap out of the ground. In the same way as the sowing of the plant and the reaping of the plant. At the same time, they're very different. If I were to hold up in front of you an apple seed and an apple tree right here, you would say they're completely different. The apple tree is much more glorious and much more helpful. And there's a lot to the apple tree that the apple seed really has. You look at it, it's really nothing. And the Bible calls it naked. It's just kind of empty of anything. The Lord uses the word dead here. And so in a a metaphoric way, it's dead. It has no life in and of itself. And yet when we see the tree come out of the ground, we see this beautiful tree that's helpful, it's fruitful, it's beautiful. And and that's that's the product of the resurrection of that dead seed. And that dead seed doesn't stay in the ground. That dead seed becomes the tree. 
It morphs into the tree. You don't dig the seed back up later. It becomes the tree. And so that's the same principle that we have with our bodies. And it's important, we talked about this last week, it's important to know that you don't sow a lost, an unsaved seed in the ground and expect to get a saved fruit. You don't sow an unrighteous seed in the ground. That's where, when 1 Corinthians says that, um, 1 Corinthians 6, it says, I'm going to turn there, and, and you guys, you can turn with me, because I think it's, it's important to address this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, is you can't sow this type of seed into the ground and expect to get a whole different fruit. What you sow into the ground is the fruit that you're going to get out of the ground. This is why in the uh, very next verse that we'll deal with next week, it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why can't flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God? Because the flesh and blood that it's referring to is flesh and blood that is full of homosexuality, full of drunkenness, identified by these things. You can't sow that into the ground and expect to get some kind of a different seed out of the ground. What you sow into the ground is what you will get out of the ground. And this is just one of many lists in the New Testament that describes for us what a lost person looks like. And when it's sown into the ground, it's going to come out of the ground and it's going to be the same. And it's going to come out of the ground unto condemnation and destruction, which is what um, people want to avoid. So, he, so he, 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 he illustrates it by sowing a seed and reaping a, a, a plant that's the idea of the resurrection. We sow a seed, which is our earthly bodies. We reap a plant, which is our heavenly bodies. He goes on to say in verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And He, com- he compares the kinds, the different kinds of flesh here. And he sa- what he's saying is, is, I'm able to make different kinds of bodies. I've made different kinds of bodies for bears and different kinds of bodies for lions and different kinds of bodies for mankind, and I can make a different kind of body for eternity. He's just simply proving to us that he has the ability to make a body that is different from this body, but yet still identifiable with, our, with, with this body. Verse 40 says, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars different from star in glory. Now he's comparing the, the glory of these. He compared the kind and now he's comparing the glory. He's made stars of different glory and the, and the, the idea of glory just means brightness. It's, it's that he has made things to shine, some things shine brighter than other things. He's made our earthly bodies and they're not as bright as our heavenly bodies are going to be. In other words, they're not as capable of reflecting the glory of God as these earthly bodies, or as our heavenly bodies will be. Our earthly bodies can't shine as bright as our heavenly bodies will. Verse 42 says, So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown, and here he's going to, here he's going to describe with four terms to describe what our earthly bodies are. 
They are perishable. They are dishonorable. They are weak and they are natural. Just four terms used to describe the earthly body. Let me just give you a a brief run-through of those. Perishable means that they're declining. Our bodies are in constant decline. The reason why we are... We are declining is because we have a perishable body. This earthly body is perishable all the way back from the Garden of Eden when Adam partook of sin and he, in, he brought death into the world. From that point forward, we were, our earthly bodies were on this decline. And, and the world does everything that it can to resist this decline, doesn't it? H- have they won? They haven't won, have they? It would be nice if they would win, but they haven't won. Because we're all still in decline. We wake up each morning and we realize, I am not the same as I was yesterday. We wake up in a new year and we're like, oh, I'm not the same as I was a year ago. We wake up you know, a decade later and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm not the same as I was a decade ago. We are in decline. And that's a part of our physical, that's a part of our earthly bodies, He says that they're dishonorable, which means that they're not glorious. They're not capable of accomplishing the purposes for which they were created. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them to perfectly shine on his glory. And our bodies now are not capable of doing that. Do you know why? Our bodies are really a a hindrance to the glory of God. Because they're full of sin they're full of flaws and weakness. Do you think it glorifies God that we're in constant decline? It doesn't, does it? That's our earthly bodies. That's our bodies now. They're in constant decline, and they're, the Lord says they're dishonorable because they're not able, able of fulfilling what their purpose was in creation. He goes on to call them weak, which implies that they're subject to sickness and pain, and they're subject to all of these things. And then he calls them natural, which means that they're fit for the earth. Then he describes the, our glorious bodies, or our, our heavenly bodies, or our eternal bodies. They are imperishable, which means they're not declining. They are glorious, which means that they do shine or reflect the glory of God in a proper, effective way. They are strong, which is the opposite of weak. They're not subject to pain. They're not subject to sickness. They're not subject to these types of things. They're not subject to anything negative. Our glorious bodies are not subject to anything negative. And then it says that they are spiritual. They are spiritual bodies and not earthly bodies or earthy bodies. It doesn't mean that they're not physical bodies, We want to make sure we understand that. They differ in condition, they differ in kind, they differ in glory, yet they are intrinsically and identifiably connected. You can can recognize, you'll be able to recognize um, your wife, your children in heaven by their looks. They will look like they look now, or you'll be able to identify them by how they look now. Um, The Lord says that we will see them as they are. We will know them as they are. So like the seed morphing into a plant, the pre-resurrected body will morph into the resurrected body. All is done by the power of God, and all is physical. The resurrected body is a physical body. The pre-resurrected body is a physical body. We will have physical bodies for all of eternity. 
Now, we get into our text this morning, and our text this morning is going to deal with origin. How do we get, how do we get, how did we get to where we're at physically, and how do we get to where we really want to be physically? So we are, um, we are perishable, weak, dishonorable, natural. How do we get there? That's what this next text is going to answer. And then how do we get to being imperishable? How do we get to the state where we're, we're strong? How do we get to a spiritual body? How do we get to that state? How do we get there? That's what the, um, the text that we're going, going to be in um, deals with. And so let's read it together if you want to follow along. Beginning in verse number 40, we'll, we'll just go back 42 and read on. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonorable but it is raised in glory. What is sown is weak. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. And then he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then he says, thus it is written. And this is, he says, in, in other words, he's saying this is how it is written. He's going to explain to us what he has just told us. And this is what this means. This is how this comes about. He says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, light, a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we are born the image, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What we have here is what's known in um, many places as the doctrine of representation. The doctrine of representation carries with it the idea of how do we get where we're at. Uh, it is the idea of um, genealogies passing something down from one generation to the next generation. We are, we are where we are because something has been passed down to us. We are a reflection of our parents who are a reflection of their parents who are a reflection of their parents. And generation, generation, generation has been passed down to make us who we are today. Many of us maybe even have sicknesses or struggles that are passed down directly from our parents, things that came right from them because they're built into their DNA that have passed down to your DNA, and now you have the same struggles that they did. And this is the idea of representation, is things are, things are constantly being passed down from generation to generation and the next generation is going to bear the, the, the things that we pass down to them. The idea of representation comes from, and Jared read it this morning well, Romans 5 deals with it strongly, and then 1 Corinthians 15 also deals with it as well. Romans 5 deals with representation on the basis of what is spiritual. Why are we, why are we sinners? And the answer is, is because Adam sinned and passed it down from his sin, passed down to his children, which passed down to his children, which has made it to me and to you. We bear the sins and the responsibility 
of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. We carry that responsibility. It's been passed down to us through genealogies, through generation after generation after generation to finally getting to us. And that's what verse 12 of Romans says for us. By one man, sin entered the world and death came by him. But death has passed to all men because all have sinned. Notice this, that our responsibility is not based upon Adam's sin. Our responsibility is based upon our own sins. But our sinfulness comes as a result of Adam's sin. Adam did something that passed down to his children that caused them to want to do something. And they passed it down to their children that caused them to want to do something. And now I have a desire in my heart that's not healthy because of what Adam did. But I'm only accountable if I sin myself, which the Bible says we're all. He says that at the end of that verse. He says, death passed to all men because all men have because all men have sinned. The Romans tells us that in 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, and why do we sin? We sin because Adam introduced a sinful nature. He brought about sin into the world when he partook of the fruit uh, in the garden that was against the will of God. It was against the commands of God. He partook of that fruit, and he passed that same rebellious spirit down to his children. You, we remember the story of Cain, story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain tries to kill Abel because he's not happy with him, and that just continues to to grow in our from generation to generation. That fallenness and that decline continues to happen. That's the idea of representation. We can look back at everything about our fallen condition, every frailty that we have, every problem that we have, every pain that we have, every sickness that we have, everything that is bad in this world today, we can can mark it all the way back in Genesis chapter number three when Adam and Eve sinned. It doesn't mean, and one one preacher said this, saying, well, I'm I'm not responsible for what they did, And the preacher said this, well, if they hadn't done it, I would have. And the reality of it is we can't point at them to blame for our problems, but we can understand where our problems come from based upon the doctrine of representation where Adam is the one that passed it down to us. It is so important to understand this because what what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to present the same teaching with Christ. So if we don't understand that our sinfulness comes as a direct result of Adam's sin, we will also not understand that our righteousness comes as a direct result of Christ's righteousness. The connection of representation has to be there, and that's why we have the the picture of these two Adams. Romans 5 tells us that sin is passed down from our ancestor Adam in Genesis and that righteousness is passed down from our ancestor Jesus. They are the starting points of sin and the starting point of righteousness. And Jared read it this morning. I'm going to read this verse again, Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Okay, so anybody who is in Christ, anybody who is in Adam, in other words, if you trace your genealogies back to Adam, all right, okay, go ahead and mark it down. That's all of us. 
If you trace your genealogies back to Adam and Eve, then you're in their family. They are your great, 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 you know how many greats go in there, grandparents. And they have passed down sin to every generation to where that you are a, to where that you are a sinner and therefore you sin. Remember this, we're not sinners We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Adam has passed down our sinfulness, and we sin as a result of that. Adam has passed down our fallenness, and we sin as a result of the fact that we're fallen. And that cannot be fixed by us, but it can be fixed by Christ. We see that in in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. It teaches us that in a physical way, we are also having a representation. Our physical bodies have also taken on the representation of Adam in in the garden and Adam, Christ, in the New Testament. Genesis 9 and verse 5 says it this way, speaking of the genealogies of the first man, Adam, and it says this, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son named Seth, and it says this about his son. He was in his own likeness and after his own image. Whose image and likeness did Seth bear? Okay, Adam's. And we would say, well, Seth bore God's image. And the issue is, yes, Seth bore God's image as much as Adam bore God's image. But Adam bore another image now as well, and that was a fallen image. And therefore, from from Adam... Each generation bears less of God's image and bears more of our image. Because what we do is we move away from God's image. Every generation moves away from God's image because we're getting further and further into Adam's image. Does that make sense? We understand where it comes from, and when we understand where it comes from, we can understand what the solution is. So he bore the likeness of Adam, and he passed that down to his kids, and they passed that down, and we all bear the likeness of those who have gone before us. In the text that we're in, we see this unfold in two different ways. And so I want to give you two, um, three or four thoughts this morning from our text that deal with these, this principle of representation as it relates to our resurrected bodies and our pre-resurrected bodies. Number one, number one is there are two representatives. There are two representatives for the entire world. They're both called Adam. Adam is a, a term that is, uh, refers to the first, the first man, Adam, and Jesus was the last man, Adam. And, and, and what it's referring to is the idea of these are two representatives of all of mankind. All of mankind is connected to, to one of these two men. All of mankind is, re- is represented or connected to one of these two men. All right, the first Adam is who we're going to look at first. Two representatives or two Adams. The first Adam represents all that are on the earth. The Bible says in our text here in verse number 45, the first Adam became a living being. So what identifies the first Adam is that he was a living being, right? Okay, Adam was a living living being. How many of us can identify with being a living being? 
We all can, right? We all can associate with Adam, the first Adam, because we're all living beings. He's the first representative of all other living, and the idea of it is living human beings. He doesn't represent animals, but he represents all of the living men, living women on the earth. And this takes place, it's interesting because he tells us the idea is that he became, the word here simply means that he be, he's becoming something as the result of something else. Adam became a representative of all of mankind on the basis of God breathing life into him. When God breathed life into Adam, he made him a unique being. He made him a living being. Before that, he was a carved out piece of dirt. When God breathed life into him, he became a representative being. He represented all of those who would come after him. And then whatever he did would be passed down from generation to generation. So he became a representative when God breathed life into him. Genesis 2 and verse 7, you're familiar with it. The Bible says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. It was at this moment that Adam, the first Adam, became a representative of all of mankind. So it was super important that Adam didn't fail. That he accomplished the task that was set before him. But we know that Adam did fail. He failed miserably. His wife sins by taking of the fruit. Adam jumps right in there with her. She takes of the, he takes of the fruit with her, and he casts all of humanity into this sinful culture, this sinful mindset, this sinful nature. He casts all of humanity into this sinfulness based upon his inability to do what he was supposed to do, or unwillingness, or whatever you would want to refer to it as. Adam represented all of mankind and passed down his sinfulness to all of us. From life, from birth, if you will, Adam became our representative. And Adam's representation is full of failure, sin, and frailty. Everything, again, I mentioned earlier, the whole picture is this, that everything bad in this world is a result of Adam falling. Adam failed. Adam failed miserably. Adam took on something that he was not able to handle. He was not able to handle sin. He could not. His wife had sinned, and the Bible doesn't say that because of Eve's sin, all men became sinful, does it? The Bible says that because of Adam's sin, all men became sinful, because it is through the genealogies, it is through the, the, the makeup of Adam that we get our makeup, each generation gets their makeup. The issue was Adam tried to deal with Eve's sin, and he failed. Adam tried to fix Eve's sin, and he failed. His effort was to involve himself in her sin. This is why we have the first Adam and the second Adam. Both tried to fix something. One failed miserably, and the other one succeeded amazingly. The first Adam represents failure, sin, and frailty. It represents condemnation. It represents eternal damnation. All of those are represented by the first man, Adam. But not, we don't only have the first man, Adam, but we have the last man, Adam. This is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ became 
a representative. In the same way that Adam became a representative by his becoming alive, the second Adam, or the last Adam, became a representative by his resurrection. Jesus became a representative of all who believe by his resurrection from the grave. When, when he rose again, when Jesus rose again, he became that second or that last representative. He became hope. When the first representative of all mankind, imagine it, the one man who represents all of mankind, if, he, if there doesn't become another man who represents mankind, then all mankind fall prey to this one man, Adam. And because he sinned, all men have become sinful, right? And therefore, we all face eternal condemnation and damnation. The wages of sin is death. But there is a second Adam, or there is a last Adam. And this last Adam did not fail. He succeeded at dealing with our sins, and he succeeded with dealing with our sins because he became a substitute for them, and he never committed them. That's what makes Jesus the perfect Adam, the perfect substitute. He is the one who can bring deliverance to us because he satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's requirements. He died on our behalf, and then he rose from the dead the third day, and it says that he didn't become a living being. It says he became a life-giving being. He becomes a representation for all of mankind for, for all believers by his resurrection. It's interesting, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, every time the term resurrection or raised is used in relation to Christ, it's used in the perfect tense, which means it's something that happened in the past but continues to bear fruit. That means that everybody that's resurrected after Jesus is resurrected is resurrected on the basis of Jesus. Does that make sense? In the same way that every sin that we commit is committed on the basis of Adam casting us into fallenness. And every person that dies is based upon Adam casting us into fallenness. In the same way, everybody who raises on the third day, everybody who says that or considers themselves to be righteous, their righteousness must be based upon the work of Christ. It must be based upon the work of Christ. He is the one who represents us in our righteousness. And there had to be another representative or we all would be condemned. We can be thankful that somebody stepped into time. I mean, seriously, we can be thankful that somebody stepped into time and said, I'm going to make a way. Because if Jesus Christ had not stepped into time, we would all be connected to our original father, Adam, and we would all be in trouble, eternally trouble. Listen to what John 5 and 21 says, For as the Father raised the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. And then in John eleven twenty five and verse 20 and 26 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then his statement is, do you believe this? 
Jesus became a representation of all who will believe at his resurrection. And he represents absolute success. There's nothing that comes out of Jesus that's not good. There's nothing. There's nothing that comes out of Jesus that's not good. There's nothing that comes out of Adam that is good. That's two Adams. That's the first thought. The second thought is important as well, and we found it in verse number 46. He says this, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. This is two seasons. It's important that we understand that what the Apostle Paul is saying is you have not arrived yet at your spiritual condition. You see, the Corinthians had believed that they they had separated the physical from the spiritual, and they're like, well, we can do whatever we want in the flesh because we're already spiritual because of what Jesus did. What they didn't understand is what the Apostle Paul is presenting to them is, is that there are two seasons. There's a season for your natural body, and there's a season for your heavenly body. There's a season for your divine body. He makes the argument that the, to, to, to refute, if you will, what the Corinthians had concluded about separating. It was known in, in the Gnostic world as dualism, as separating the body from the spirit. So here's what he says. There is a season. One season is now, and one season is after you die. When you resurrect, you will be resurrected with a new body. You will be changed or transformed is the term that's used in the next, in the next, in the next portion of this, of this passage of Scripture. We will always have the flesh to deal with in this life. Remember that. We will always have the flesh to deal with in this life. We're not going to be transformed fully until the next life. We're not going to be transformed fully until the next life. We need to understand this. This is the argument that the Apostle Paul is making when he says, be sure to know this, that there are two seasons. The first is 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 fleshly. The last is spiritual. The mediation, the breaking point, the transition is death. So the pre-resurrected fleshly season in the season that we live in right now, the lost are dominated by the flesh. An unsaved person is dominated by the sinful flesh. They are darkened on the inside and they are darkened on the outside. In this same season, the saved are at constant war with their flesh. Nothing is easy for a believer post-salvation but pre-resurrection. Because the battle is, is that your flesh your, your, your outer being is constantly still inundated with all of those things that we talked about. It's still weak. It's still perishable. It's still dishonorable. And it's still natural. Your outer man hasn't transformed at all. This is why but the inner man is completely renewed. It's old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, Right? The inner man has completely changed. The outer man hasn't changed yet. This is why when a person becomes a believer, they enter into the greatest war of their life. And it's not a war with your neighbor. And it's not a war with your government. It's a war with yourself. Your outer man still wants all evil things. 
The Apostle Paul tells us very clearly in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, referring to his new creation on the inside, those are the things that I don't do. And then he says, the things that I hate, these are the things that I actually do. He's drawing a contrast with this, that I am new spiritually on the inside, but I am still, I am still broken on the outside. I still like those things that I ought not to be doing because they're dishonorable to God. This is why for a Christian, you're in a battle. You are in a constant battle and nothing is easy for you. A lost person just, just embraces all of the carnality of the world and all of the decline. They just embrace it. Christians war against it. They battle against it. This is why scripture tells us to War with the flesh. It tells us to deny the flesh. It tells us to, to, to mortify the flesh or put it to death. It tells us to discipline the flesh. Why would it tell us all of these things if the flesh didn't matter? Because your spirit is renewed, but your flesh is still weak. Jesus tells Peter that on the night of his crucifixion when Peter's getting ready to deny Jesus. Do you remember that story? Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, you're... Your spirit is ready, but your flesh is weak. And that is true for all of us until the day that we die. Your spirit is ready, but your flesh is weak. Your spirit is ready, but your flesh is weak. This is why we have to be at war. It's important to recognize what season that we're in. The Bible says in Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh, listen to this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And that the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you ought to do. Your body and the desires that your body has are going to keep you from doing the things that your spirit knows is right. And we all see this happening daily in our life, post-resurrection spiritual season, the season after we raise. At that time, believers are dominated by the Spirit. The war, the war is over. We now have our new bodies, and we have the new Spirit that God gave us at salvation. Everything is easy for a believer post-resurrection. Everything is right for a believer post-resurrection. However, the lost begin a war. The lost begin a war with the Spirit. Because the spirit becomes dominant in the earth. It becomes dominant over all things. And the lost now have to deal with righteousness. This is why the millennial kingdom will be ruled by righteousness. And the lost will be under that judgment. They'll now have to face righteousness as a, as a justice for their sins. The body becomes imperishable, strong, and glorious. This is why we're commanded in this life to walk in the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Romans 8 tells us this, a man who is led by the Spirit, these are the children of God. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not walk in the Spirit, do not walk in the flesh, and you will not fulfill the Desires do says walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the desires of your flesh. Why does it say all those things? Because it knows this that you're going to walk through this life and I'm going to walk through this life with the outer person wanting to do what the 
natural man, the weak man, the perishing man wants to do. And the inner man is wanting to focus on what the imperishable man wants to focus on. And there's a war that goes on. There's a battle that goes on there. That's two seasons. Remember, the seasons are broken apart by the resurrection. You will never reach the state of righteousness in the flesh that you desire until after you raise from the dead. And therein lies the reason why we never find it easy to live in this life. It's difficult. There are two natures. There's a nature, a nature is something that comes naturally to us, something that is just natural for us to do. There are two natures that take place in this uh, passage of Scripture. These natures are um, the earthly nature and the heavenly nature. The earthly nature and the heavenly nature. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to confuse you with the, the talking about there's two natures inside of you, because I don't believe that there's two natures inside of you. I believe that there's one nature inside of you, and there's another nature on the outside of you. There's one guiding light inside of you, which is, which is the Holy Spirit of God, and then there's an external nature that wants to do the things that it doesn't, that it ought not to do. The word here literally means earthy. It means to be from the dust, to be fit for earthly things. This is why sin is easy. This is why temptation is powerful. This is why rebellion is something we becomes normal. This is why obedience is difficult. This is why we promote and desire and seek after that which is sinful. Our earthly body is prone. It is earthy. It is dirt. It's why it's prone to dirt. It pursues dirt. It likes dirt. It's like a kid, you know. They like to play in the dirt. You let them go outside and there's a mud puddle there. They're going to go find that mud puddle and they're going to bounce around in it for a few minutes until they're covered in mud and then they're going to come back in and say, Mom, I'm a mess, right? Or the pig that goes and waddles in the mud. That's the idea of the earthy, the earthy body. It's, it's made of dust. Uh, it's not something that is, it's not, it's, not, it's not more than that. It's made of dust. And it's going to be, that earthly part of you is going to be prone to dust. Prone to sin, prone to temptation, prone to all of these things. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I beat my body into submission. Why would somebody beat their bodies into submission? Because he knows it's dirty. The only way to win over it in this life, the only way to win over your body, your, I don't want to use body because body is not bad, it's flesh. The only way to win over your flesh in this life is through discipline. Our earthly bodies are always prone to what is evil and resistant to what is good unless they are disciplined. And it is the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to discipline our bodies. It is learning to submit to the Spirit inside of you and resist the flesh outside of you. It's to say no to what the flesh wants and yes to what the Spirit of God wants. Our heavenly nature is simply, it's heavenly. It's from heaven. It means it's fit from he- for heaven. It's fit for heavenly things. It's fit for spiritual things. It's fit for divine things. The Lord says in 2 Peter 1, 4, by which he has granted us this precious and very great promise, 
so that through them you may become partakers. Notice this. He has granted us these great and precious promises. What is that? It's the gospel. So that through them you may become a partaker of his divine nature. Being escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He offers us this divine nature that escapes us from this that helps us to escape from this sinful world. And he offers them in a, in a futuristic perspective. They're a promise. There are two natures that we're going to deal with. One is, pre, one is pre-resurrection. You're going to deal with the nature of the flesh. And after the resurrection, you're going to deal with the nature of the spirit. You're going to be transformed completely. The, the body is going to be changed to be not just... not earthy, but, but now heavenly. You won't have the battle that you had before. The last thing this morning is two promises. There's two promises at the end of our text in verse number, um, beginning in verse number 47. He says this, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And this is Adam and Adam. This is Adam and Jesus. Just so you know, these are both representatives as was the man of dust, so also shall those, those who are of the dust, okay, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Well, let's stop there. We just know this. Those who are, here is your picture. I want you to pinch yourself. Everybody pinch yourself, all right? Do you, are you earthy? You feel that? Okay, you're, you just feel that. He's, he, this is the picture he's saying. He's saying as much as you are earthy, as much as you can feel the pain of pinching yourself, he's going to draw the same, he's going to connect that to the surety of heavenly. We, we all know that we're earthy, right? The, the, the question at hand is, are we ever going to be heavenly? That's the challenge, right? The challenge is, yeah, I get that I'm earthy, and the Apostle Paul is saying all men are earthy because Adam was earthy. But he's then going to say, in the same way that you can pinch yourself and know that you're earthy, you're also going to be heavenly. As much as you are assured this morning that you can look around this room and see a lot of earthy people, as much as you are assured of that as a reality, you can be assured that one day you will look around and see a world full of heavenly people. He says... As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I want you to notice, I want you to notice just quickly here, I want you to notice the, um, the tenses of these verbs he says, as was the man of dust. So we have somebody that is gone, right? Past tense, this was, Adam was the man of dust. As was the man of dust, so also are, present tense, we are those who are of the dust. So Adam was, we are. We're all dust, right? We're all dust. As was Adam, so we are. Then he says, and as is the man of heaven, is is present tense, right? 
So now we're dealing with Christ is not was. We're not looking back at Christ and saying, well, yeah, he died. We're looking at him at, as if he is, because we know that Christ is. When he resurrected, he continued, and therefore he continues today. As is the man of heaven, notice this, so also are, present tense, right? So also are those who are of heaven, present tense. So that means that I am, I am currently, right now, of heaven. I'm also, right now, currently of earth. I am currently in my physical of earth. I am currently of my spiritual of heaven. Currently. I am current, Adam was, and we are earthly. Jesus is, and we are heavenly, if we are in Christ. And then he goes on to say, just as we have borne, which is past tense, we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also, which is future tense, bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the promise that we are going to physically bear the image of Christ. 1 John chapter number 3, the Bible tells us, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. 1 John 3 and verse 2, it says, The reason why the world does not know, let's see, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be, what we will be, note this, we are God's children now, we are spiritual now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. This is the resurrection. And anyone who has this hope will purify themselves even as he is pure. The promise is simply this, twofold. Like Adam, like Adam and all who are in Adam are like him, all who are in Christ are like him. We are currently, if we are in Christ, we are currently like him in the spiritual realm. We are just, when God looks at us from heaven, he sees Christ in us. He sees perfection. He sees all of the things that Christ accomplished as having been applied to our account. If we are in Christ, if we are his, in his, if we are in the generations of Christ, we can know that we are like Christ. In the same way that those who are in the generations of Adam can know that they are like Adam. We are in his image spiritually. However, the second promise is this, all who are in Christ will be like Christ. And this is the promise for the physical. What is on the inside will become what is on the outside. We are spiritual on the inside right now. We will become physically spiritual beings. Physical beings that are spiritual in the same way that Jesus was a spiritual being that is physical. We will be that as well. In closing, let me give you a few thoughts in closing. Being like Adam, 
but not indwelt by Jesus, being like Adam, but not in Christ's regeneration or rebirth, means that you are a sinner, you are condemned, and you will face God on judgment day as your judge. There is no hope for anyone who is in Adam, but not in Christ. That's why the Bible says, when Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, he says, you must be born again. Why? Because by being in the first Adam, you are condemned. But if you become in the second Adam, you are forgiven. You are justified, is the word in the Bible. You are saved. You are delivered from your first family into your second family. You are, the word the Lord uses is you are adopted you are born again. All of these terms are meant to know, meant to note that we're changing families. If you're here this morning and you're a human being, then you are condemned because Adam sinned and you sinned. If you're not in Christ, who is the only way through which you can be delivered, you will be condemned one day because you are in Adam. And he sinned and you have sinned. Number two, being like Adam, but indwelt by Christ, means that you are a forgiven sinner, transformed fully by the power of God, but that you are waiting and persevering for the resurrection. You're working in this life. You are looking forward to the full deliverance of your bodies. Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly and we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting eagerly. We're looking forward to the hope of a Christian is not in this life only. Matter of fact, it is not in this life mainly. The hope for a Christian, the expectation for a Christian is that we are going to live eternally somewhere one day. When the Bible says that your body is like a, is like a vapor, it appears for your, your, your life is like a vapor, it appears for a short time, and then it vanishes away, it's comparing it to eternal life. When the Lord says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on this earth, it's referring to living this life for the next life. We've got to remember that, folks. Our Christianity is not built upon having things better now. It's built upon having things better later. A lot of religions out there today that are teaching Christianity is about having it better now. Your best life now. I remember John MacArthur said this. This was his quote. If your best life is now, then hell is your next life. Our best life is not now. Our best life is coming. Lastly, being like Adam but indwelt by Christ means that you understand that you have not arrived at your destination. You are currently striving. You are currently working. You are currently, you are currently disciplining. You are currently rejecting. You are currently resisting the temptations that your natural body has in opposition to your spiritual 
the Spirit indwelling you, one day that will all be over. The war will be over one day. But right now you understand this, that you are in Christ, but you are also a natural man. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness whom the Lord will reward on that day and not to me only but to all those who are loving his appearing. We know that we're in a war and we know that we're in decline and we fight the battle and we war the war knowing that we are the victors. And we are the victors because we are in Christ. So where does it come from? The origin of sin, the origin of decline, the origin of all things that are evil, they begin with with Adam. And all of those who are in Adam are in Adam fully. Then there is a Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into the world. He died for us so that we might change families. And that change is offered to all people who will believe. It is all about embrace. As much as being born issues you into Christ's family, embracing Jesus, uh, issues you into Adam's family, embracing Jesus brings you into Christ's family. Believing in him, trusting in him, and him alone. He is the only way through which we can have righteousness. And he is the only one who has promised it to us and can actually go follow through with it. Think about those things. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that we have of eternity. Thank you for the down payment that we have today, the, the, um, just the upfront reminder through the Spirit that we are yours. We have something to look forward to and hope for. And we pray, dear God, that you would... Um, Give us a heart for the future and give us a heart for eternal things that we might be your servants in this life. We might resist the temptations of the flesh and pursue the desires of your spirit. We give you the praise for it in Jesus' name.